listening to Ohio V, The World, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode six of Ohio Be the World. Today we're talking about Ohio versus the patriarchy. We're so excited to sit down with author Patricia Miller. Uh, the author of her brand new book just came out last month called Bringing Down the Colonel, already getting rave reviews, critically acclaimed all over the country. Uh, and we'll sit down with Patty to talk about Madeline Pollard, the Cincinnati College schoolgirl in the 1890s who brings down one of the most powerful men in the United States. The trial between Madeline Pollard and Congressman William C. Breckinridge would capture the nation's attention in 1893 and 1894. It would really become one of the first Me Too movement moments uh, about 120-some years uh, before the Me Too movement that we've seen splash across our headlines in 2016, 2017, and even this year. And my wife, Miss Ohio V. The World, sent me an article that she thought I'd be interested in. It was the Smithsonian's you know, top eight history books of 2018. She didn't even know I was doing an interview the next week with Patty Miller. Uh, but her book just came out November 13th, and there it was. It's one of the Smithsonian Magazine's best uh, history books in 2018 called Bringing Down the Colonel. Uh, we've got a link in the episode description. Uh, check our Facebook page, Instagram in um, our, our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com, and you can order right there off Amazon. Awesome book. Please do so. Uh, you can even do so here before, before Christmas. And you can learn the story of Madeline Pollard, Victorian age orphan, who becomes, I mean, this relationship would become a topic with even President Grover Cleveland at the time. Her affair with, with William Breckenridge reached that high because Breckenridge was such an ascending member of the Congress uh, and, and possibly maybe even bound for the White House. Our beer for the episode, we are going to be having a Braxton Brewing Company, braxtonbrewing.com, and we are going to be having their summer trip, 4.2% alcohol by volume. It's a sour. You guys might know a lot of people don't like them, but I love, I love me a sour beer. Uh, the summer trip by Braxton. Like I said, a, a passion for a Berliner Weiss, so a, a German kind of kettle-aged sour, really good beer. And it's from Braxton Brewing. Braxton from Covington, Kentucky, just across the river from the Queen City, Cincinnati. Uh, a really cool brewery. They make a lot of great beers. But their summer trip, passion fruit sour that I've been having, really good stuff. And we're going to be spending a lot of our time in Kentucky, Breckenridge being a congressman from Kentucky, Madeline Pollard being from Kentucky originally, before they meet when she's a student in Cincinnati. A lot of our story will take place in Cincinnati and along the Kentucky border. So again, braxtonbrewing.com. Go check them out. I've been having them down at my brother owns a bar called Woodland's Backyard in, in Grandview Heights. And they've had the Braxton down there the last few weeks. So we've been enjoying it. Whether it's been Harvey Weinstein or Kevin Spacey, you know, Matt Lauer or Bill O'Reilly, or any number of politicians and business leaders that have been called out and exposed by the Me Too movement went viral in the fall of 2017. 
but a movement against sexual assault and sexual harassment. And today we're going to be talking about the trial, Pollard v. Breckenridge in Washington, D.C. in 1894, that again gripped all the newspapers and is the subject of Patricia Miller's new hit book, Bringing Down the Colonel. But without further ado, it's episode six, Ohio vs. the Patriarchy. I was afraid of the retaliation. I know the power of patriarchy. I know what men can do when they're angry. We can't all be sluts. We can't all be asking for it. I am here to give you permission to be angry. This reality might not have to be our reality anymore. I felt this crushing sense of powerlessness. This is the time to take my power back. Here's my story. Over investigation into sexual harassment clues, cutting its ties with Bill O'Reilly. I felt it was my duty for the women who were silenced to be brave. Who have worked at the plaza. It's okay to stand up for yourself. Taylor Swift appearing in court today. Harvey Weinstein, the New York People forget a lot that there's a human behind this. Someone who was very hurt and wrong. Me too. Me too. Me too. Me too. Me could change for my daughter. I never thought things could change for me. They say in life, timing is everything. And we have great authors like Patricia Miller on. We want to talk about the process, not just the book, but the process of how a great, great history book gets written. And that's what this is, Bringing Down the Colonel. It's an awesome book. It's groundbreaking. Um, and then, like I said, it's going to win a lot of awards. But this book comes out basically in the middle of the Me Too movement. And you'd think that Patty tried to, to line it up that way, but we talked to her about how Bringing Down the Colonel got written, and it took over 10 years. Well, that's what's, what's kind of blown me away about the process of writing this, and sometimes it really does become almost like a magical experience. I started this book 10 years ago, and I've been digging around, trying to suss out the relationships and what really happened. So right, by the time I sat down, I sold it and actually sat down to write it. It was only about two and a half years ago. And as I started to really get into it, first the Cosby thing broke, and then the Weinstein thing broke, and I started to feel less like I was writing history and more I was just writing this parallel story that just happened to have taken part place in the past. There was one point when I'm writing about the women in Lexington, Kentucky, who rise up against the colonel to try to throw him out of office. Yeah, during the campaign, they, yeah. During the campaign, which follows the trial. And the women have this big women's meeting that they call for the, the Lexington Opera House. They want all the women in town, all the, especially a lot of the elite women in town, to come in and make a stand against Breckenridge. And they talk about the trains being packed as they came into the city and women pouring into the opera house and people getting turned away because it was so full. And I was I was literally writing that during the weekend of the Women's March. It was eerie. I, yeah. And it, as a historian, it's really helpful, though, because you can only imagine how people felt in the past. But in this way, I really almost felt like I was thrown into the exact same societal emotional experience. And I think that really gave a spark to the book it might not have had otherwise. Madeline Pollard was a small town girl from Kentucky, Victorian age Kentucky. And during the Gilded Age, when women had not nearly the same rights, certainly couldn't vote. Very few women worked. You're expected to, to get a husband, have babies, raise those kids, and then die. We don't know exactly what year she was born. Patricia did a lot of research on that, but we just don't know for sure. Looking as far as you know, times that she sailed across the ocean and had to sign the registry, 
uh, coming back from England, census reports, we didn't keep quite as good records back then. But she's born sometime in the 1860s, probably about 1866, 1867. Rose up outside of Lexington in a place called Crab Orchard, which is about um, 50 miles outside of Lexington. They were trying to portray her as like this kind of penniless, low-life orphan, but she was orphaned, but her father had actually been a local figure of some note. But Madeline's father passes away. She's you know, 12, 13 years old. She's orphaned. And she really is not someone even of the middle class. But she's clearly somebody with some street smarts. And clearly somebody with an incredible drive to make something of her life. She's a talented writer. She certainly had the brains. But Madeline finds her way to Wesleyan Female College in Cincinnati, Ohio. A pretty famous school. Uh, an all-female school, obviously, uh, of which there are very few in the country. Only later in the Gilded Age would female colleges would spring up across the country, especially in the eastern United States. At the time Madeline Pollard goes there um, in 1884, I would say it was past its heyday. But um, before the Civil War, it had been a very popular institution for the daughters of wealthy planters, who surprisingly for that time, it was very fashionable to send your daughter, if you were a wealthy southern cotton planter, to um, more than just a finishing school, like a woman's seminary, they call them. And they actually studied math and languages and things beyond the um, things you would think would make a proper Southern wife, like languages and dancing and things like that. And it was most famous for having graduated um, Lucy Hayes, the very popular wife of President Hayes. She was the first first lady to have a college degree. Um, and it wasn't really a college how we would think of it now. It was kind of like a extended high school, maybe junior college slash finishing school. But at the time, that was for most women still an extremely good education. So the fact that Madeline Pollard manages to wrangle herself in there um, was a huge step up for her at a time when very few people, never mind most women, even had a, a secondary, even had a high school education. But Madeline didn't come from money. So we asked Patty Miller, how did she get to such a prestigious place like Wesleyan Female College in Cincy? So she meets this old farmer. She called him old. I mean, I think he was 50, so he wasn't really that old, but she was a teenager. Um, and he falls madly in love with her and wants to marry her. And so she tells him that she will go to college and get her teaching certificate, and then he can marry her when she finishes college. Now, later she claimed she always intended to pay him back and wasn't really going to marry him, but he clearly thought she was going to marry him. So it was a very unusual arrangement, which really speaks to how desperate she was you know, to get an education that she would enter into such an agreement. Like we said earlier, life sometimes is just all about timing. Madeline Pollard's life changed when she boarded a train from Cincinnati to go see her family outside of Lexington. On that train to Frankfurt, she met William Breckinridge, the up-and-coming congressman, war hero, coming from really the premier political dynasty of not just the Commonwealth of Kentucky, but a family that held sway even in our nation's capital. We asked Patty about that first meeting and how Madeline's life would change forever. That's correct. She's going to Frankfurt um, because her sister is ill, deathly ill with consumption. And in those days, the train lines weren't really unified yet. So she had to take a train from Cincinnati to Lexington. 
um, and then take a train from Lexington to Frankfurt to where her family was. So she, right after she gets off the train, and you had to physically switch trains, which was kind of a pain. You have to take your bag and you'd have to get off the train and uh, at the train station and go on another train. So just after she, she switches trains in, um, in Lexington, she meets Breckenridge on the train. And that was another point of contention. Breckenridge would claim that she spoke to him first, but she claimed that Breckenridge came up to her and said, oh, don't I know you? and introduced himself. Um, and several people after the trial was over did uh, confirm that that version of events was likely the truth. William Campbell Preston Breckenridge, the male, in our, the male star in this story, comes from a long line of successful politicians from Kentucky and other states that have found their way to Washington, D.C. William Breckenridge was the new up-and-coming member of that family, a family like the Bushes or the Kennedys almost, the Tafts, a family where a grandfather had been an attorney general you know, for Thomas Jefferson. It goes back that far. A vice president, John C. Breckinridge. We asked Patty about who was William Breckinridge. Was he the one who's going to reach even higher and maybe find his way to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? The Breckenridges were really, I mean, in those days, knowing who the Breckenridges were would be like knowing who the Kennedys are now. They really were a political dynasty at the time. Um, the Breckenridge in my book was William Campbell Preston Breckenridge, who was the third generation of prominent Breckenridges. His grandfather, John Breckenridge, had been in Jefferson's cabinet. He was um, his attorney general. His father was a very prominent uh, Presbyterian minister and anti-slavery advocate. His cousin, John Cable Breckinridge, was famous for um, being thrown out of the Senate for treason when he joined the Confederacy, but um, had been vice president and had run against Lincoln as the Southern Democrat candidate. Um, so they were a very well-known political family. He had cousins in the Senate, in the House, uh, governors everywhere. Their, their names just littered the, um, in Arkansas and Kentucky and in Washington, the political, you know, stratosphere, so to speak. And at the point, um, that the book comes about, which is 1893, that the book kind of really kicks off. He was really just beginning to ascend as a major superstar within the Democratic Party. The, um, the big issue for him was tariffs, and he was very well known and very well spoken on the tariff issue. He had given some very famous speeches in the House on tariffs. And because of his prominence um, of his family, but also because he was an excellent speaker and orator at a time when political orators were really superstars, he was known as the silver-tongued orator of Kentucky. Um, and so he was really ascendant. It was widely expected he would get a Senate seat when Joe Blackburn retired from the Senate. He had been talked about as Speaker of the House. It was likely people thought he would end up in the White House. There was really nothing stopping his political career in 1893 at that time. In the summer of 1884, after they met, William Breckenridge calls on Madeline Pollard. She's at Wesleyan Female College, and he's in town, and he asks her to, to go out. He comes to the school and picks her up. It's August 1st, 1884. Madeline then 17, maybe 18, it's not completely clear. But we talk about that faithful first date. We use the word date in quotation marks. I wouldn't call it a date per <laughs> se. <laughs> um, the first encounter, I would say. 
So um, Madeline Pollard has made this arrangement with this farmer to support her while she goes through school. But after about a year of school, the farmer's not so pleased with this arrangement because she's far away. She's in Cincinnati. He's still back by Lexington. Um, and he starts to put pressure on her to leave school and pay him back. And, you know, let's get going with this marriage thing here. You've had plenty of schooling for a woman in the 19th century, I'm sure he thought. And so she's really desperate. She had signed a letter that her mother had witnessed. And so she was afraid that that letter was like a legally binding document and she could be forced to marry him if she couldn't pay back the money he had already spent on her tuition. So she had met Breckenridge on the train. He had introduced himself. They talked. He mentioned he knew her father, who was you know, locally a small-time politician, so it made sense he would have known her father. So she writes to uh, Breckenridge, who was a lawyer by trade and who was just running for Congress at the time, and asks him if she could be you know, required to fulfill this contract. And he is in Cincinnati one day on business and saying he had nothing else to do in the late afternoon. He takes the streetcars over to the college to see if he can meet with her in person about her questions about whether she has a legally binding contract. Um, they meet in the parlor of the university. Um, and Breckenridge would claim that she suggested they go for a ride that evening, but Madeline would claim, and I think with some uh, credibility, that it was he who suggested they go see a concert that evening where they could talk more in depth about her legal problems. Madeline claimed he kind of kept putting her off, you know, let's talk later, let's talk in private. Um, so Madeline agrees to go out with him that evening to a concert. They ask permission from the school's president because for a young woman to go out with an older man like that, um, was a bit unusual. And at Breckenridge's suggestion, they portray that he is a relative, that it, he's an uncle or something like that. So it looks proper for them to go out together. So Breckenridge shows up after dinner. And Madeline, I think, thought they were just going to walk to the concert. They were right in downtown Cincinnati. Um, but Breckenridge claims he didn't know exactly which hill the concert hall was on, and he didn't want to get lost. So he has hired a carriage from a hack stand near his hotel. And he shows up around, they said it was around dusk and it was in the summer. So it was probably right around eight o'clock um, in this closed carriage. If you can imagine, you know, an 18th century or 19th century carriage, this is one with a closed cab with windows, but the entire cab is enclosed. It was a really stifling hot August night. So people were kind of surprised. There was some teachers and students around that night that he shows up in this closed carriage because usually on a hot summer night, you'd want an open carriage. You sure. could get some fresh air. So they go out for uh, this concert. They, she gets in the carriage with him. And, you know, exactly what happened was under dispute still 10 years later at the trial. But I tend to believe Madeline's version of events where she claims Breckenridge said he had a headache and he didn't want to go to the stuffy, hot, gaslit concert hall. So could they just drive into the cool of the foothills? And of course, you have to imagine at this time, Cincinnati is not very heavily developed. So the city is right there, but the hills all around Cincinnati are still completely undeveloped. Right. So it's the countryside, not far from you know what is the downtown part of the city by the, by the river. So they drive into the cool of the hills and it's there that Madeline claims Breckenridge makes advances. Um, that she does not completely understand. She's 17 years old. Um, and he basically tries to seduce her in a carriage ride that evening. And then when she complains after a little while, 
justifies it saying, oh, it wasn't really that bad and you're just a prude. And, you know, it's again, language like you hear nowadays from some of these men who have, you know, made uh, overtures to young actresses and things like that. And then when the actresses complain, they turn around and say, oh, no, it was consensual. You know, I didn't mean to do anything. Madeline would see Breckenridge again while he was in Cincinnati. He called on her again, and she had she had these issues with with the guy Rhodes. You know the arrangement that had her in the school. Uh, and he was you know trying to force her to marry him. Breckenridge says he can help. He's a lawyer, so she agrees to meet with him again. And it's this meeting that will send Madeline Pollard, you know, on, on an eight or nine year journey a journey of what was called back then a fallen woman, a journey that would lead to heartbreak and death, an exposure of an entire system and a class of women in this country in the 1890s that the newspapers and the public simply refused to acknowledge. So she claims that the next day he says, they still haven't had really time to talk about her case because he was too busy, you know, coming on to her. So Breckenridge convinces her to meet at the Cincinnati Public Library the next morning. And at the trial, his lawyer says, well, why, why did you go with him if you knew of what had happened the night before? And she says, well, he told me he could help me and he would help me get a teaching position so I could pay my debts down and he would look after me. And he was just such a, such a man that he could make it seem like that made sense. And again, you hear these echoes of these young women nowadays who say, well, I had this career to think about, so I didn't say anything about it, and I let it go. And you hear the voice of this young woman who's in a lot of trouble. Financially, she's going to get kicked out of the school because he won't pay anymore. Emotionally, her sister has just died. Her family is still broken up. And here comes this older, powerful man who's offering her, you know, I can help you. I can smooth the path for you. So she meets him at the library. And lo and behold, they don't want them to talk in the library. They can't talk in the library. Mm -hmm. So then he suggests they go to the house of a friend. Um, So then they go to the house of a friend where it quickly becomes apparent to Madeline it's what they called in those days an assignation house, which was not a brothel per se. It was more of a place where people who were having illicit affairs could meet um, and have a room and the landlord would just kind of turn a blind eye and not ask what they needed a room for for three hours in the middle of the day. Right. So, so they meet at Mrs. Rose's, they go to Mrs. Rose's assignation house and Breckenridge tries to talk her into going to the upstairs bedroom with him and she refuses. And at one point he locks her in the room and goes away and she threatens to scream. So it's just like this, this building, this escalating scene where he's trying to seduce this young woman and she's trying to weigh this is a really influential guy. Like, what do I do versus I don't, you know, I don't want to do this. Madeline Pollard becomes Congressman Breckenridge's mistress. There's no other way to describe it. Secret rendezvous. He puts her up in, in places in Cincinnati, Lexington, uh, and eventually in Washington, D.C. We asked Patty about the nature of their relationship throughout the 1880s and into the 1890s and the tragedy and heartbreak of being a mistress during this this time of this Victorian age double standard. 
First, she stays in Lexington. She does go to school in Lexington, which is where um, the she's still involved with the old farmer who agreed to pay for her education, and he agrees to send her to school in Lexington, which is closer to the Sayer Institute in Lexington, which is a well-known uh, girls' secondary school in Lexington. Um, so she's in Lexington. She's living at a boarding house, um, and she is not too long into when she starts school, realizes that she's pregnant. She has seen Breckenridge twice in August, both times. Either time could have been the opportunity when she became pregnant. Um, so she has to, after one semester of school, she comes to Cincinnati to hide her pregnancy, gets a room, uh, to me, one of the most heartbreaking parts of her story, because you can imagine being a young woman in this situation. She's pregnant. She doesn't know what to do. Breckenridge has given her some money. She gets a room over a mattress store to kind of just lay low while she's pregnant and eventually goes to a place called the Norwood Founding Asylum in Cincinnati, which was one of many charitable institutions during the period where young women who had illicit pregnancies could kind of be hidden away until they had a baby. And then the baby would be left at this founding asylum um, where they often perished because it wasn't a huge demand for adoption in those days. And these were Everyone knew these were illegitimate children, and people weren't really that hot on adopting illegitimate children. So she goes to this Norwood founding asylum you know, by herself and has this baby of Breckenridge's. Um, and the next couple years are just this pattern. She goes back to Lexington. Breckenridge, when he comes home to, from Washington, he sees her. They go to the same assignation house they originally went to over and over again. Then she becomes pregnant again and has to come to Washington. So she's kind of living life on the down low. You know, she's his mistress. She's claiming they're they're very close. He writes to her all the time. She reads his articles. She helps correct his speeches. But she has to live completely in the shadows at this time um, because both of the pregnancies and just of the nature of the relationship. In the early 1890s, Breckenridge's wife dies. The now four or five term congressman is continuing to rise up the ranks and eyeing maybe even a possible run or as a running mate in 1896 in the Democratic Party. But as a new widow, his relationship with Madeline risks being exposed. Madeline's now ready to, to become his, his actual wife, but Congressman Breckenridge has other ideas. We asked Patty uh, about the wedding announcements that are announced in, in the papers in D.C. and in Cincinnati and in Kentucky, even though they never do get married. And in fact, Breckenridge would suddenly marry someone else. Um, and all this while, Breckenridge is married. It, he was married to his second wife. His first wife had died in childbirth a year after their marriage. So this was his second wife, technically, um, Asa Duche, who was from a very, another very prominent Kentucky family. Um, so his wife, Asa, dies in the summer of 1892. She was never a very... Um, very robust woman. She was frail her whole life and she suddenly sickens and dies. And so Madeline Pollard having, you know, Breckenridge having promised her many times over the years that he would marry her if he ever could, uh, you know, it's like, great, we can get married now. I know we need to wait a year or two to be respectable, but this is great news. You know, we can finally be together. We can finally get married once we finished mourning your wife. Um, so Breckenridge starts, you know, oh, yeah, I guess we'll get married <laughs> well, maybe a year or two. Why don't you go to Europe for a few years to study? You know, Breckenridge instantly realizes that he's kind of caught and that he is on the hook to marry Madeline when um, maybe that is not 
the best thing for his career at this point. So they go back and forth. We know this because a lot of the letters she wrote to him at this time and the telegram she sent to him demanding that he affirm their going to be married at some point were entered into evidence during the trial. Um, so they're going back and forth. So finally, Madeline Pollard just decides to take matters into her own hands because she's heard a rumor that he's also seeing this other woman, um, Louisa Wig, who is a very well-placed um, widow of a diplomat and very, you know, much more social clout than she had. So Madeline Pollard decides to unilaterally uh, make an announcement of their marriage to the Washington Post. And even before that, the Cincinnati Inquirer, which was a hugely important paper to the scandal and a really major uh, national paper at the time that people paid attention to their political coverage, their uh, Washington correspondent was very famous at the time, uh, also had a, a piece that there's a rumor that Breckenridge was going to marry Miss Madeline Pollard. So Madeline kind of helps things along and makes an official announcement of their marriage to the Washington Post, which is instantly picked up by the New York Times because he's a very famous person. Um, so she tries to jumpstart the whole process of them getting married by making a public announcement of their engagement, which really puts Breckenridge into a corner because either he marries her or he you know, disappoints her and then she is going to try to seek revenge somehow. But as soon as rumors start to leak out that she and he might be getting married after his wife dies, people back in Lexington who knew full well about the affair uh, started saying, oh, you know, those two have been, there's been rumors about those two for years dating back to a carriage ride in 1884 in the foothills of Cincinnati that raised a lot of eyebrows. I mean, people still remembered that carriage ride. That's how kind of, you know, scandalous that had been at the time because she leaves the university with him and comes back kind of late at night, all flustered. Madeline Pollard would come a long way from the farms of Kentucky to a common schoolgirl in Cincinnati, Ohio. Her relationship with William Breckinridge would become a topic at the White House. It would become a situation that even the president, Grover Cleveland, would address, whether through a third-party intermediary or not. He knew who Madeline Pollard was, and he knew about their relationship. It was not a very well-kept secret. Grover Cleveland puts the hammer down and for all intents and purposes ends the relationship between Madeline Pollard and William C. Breckinridge. I mean, I'm a, a student of political history. I love politics and political history. And so what's fascinating about this whole story is it reaches to the highest levels of the Cleveland administration. Several people, uh, Treasury Secretary Carlisle and Cleveland, were both intimately involved in kind of how this scandal played out. It just becomes obvious that politically it's suicide. So Breckenridge sends one of his political appointees over to Cleveland, you know, for the nod. And normally that would be no problem. Breckenridge and Cleveland were very much like they agreed on things politically 100%. Breckenridge had been one of the first Democrats to back Cleveland's idea of coming back for, you know, a second non-consecutive term. So usually his appointments would be just completely rubber stamped. And he sends this guy up to Cleveland and Cleveland says, you tell Breckenridge if he marries that woman who he's rumored to be engaged to, his career is over. You know, there will never be another political appointment. That is it. He's dead in Washington. So that obviously had to put a real chill through Breckenridge's spine when he heard that. Basically, if he married Madeline Pollard, you know, everyone was going to know about what had happened and he was politically dead.
suddenly marries a third cousin, much more established, Louisa Wayne. It's sudden, and it comes out of nowhere, and Madeline is furious. You know, a woman scorned, led on for almost a decade. Gave birth, gave up these children, was promised marriage, and she's got nothing. She does what almost most people who are desperate and have nothing else to, to go to. She takes legal action. She sues Congressman Breckenridge for breach of promise. Right. So she brings suit for breach of promise to marry, which was literally, it was a contract case. Um, in those days, marriage was considered a, a civil uh, engagement was considered kind of a contract. Once someone had pledged to marry you, that was basically the, the first part of the contract. The marriage was just the formality, the form formalization of the contract. So if a man broke an engagement to a woman and basically broke the contract to marry, she was at a tremendous disadvantage. First of all, she lost her livelihood because for most women, that was your livelihood was getting married. That's how you would you know be, be supported. Um, and secondly, usually it would cast aspersions on the woman whom you know, the engagement had been broken, that they were perhaps not chaste or perhaps not suitable to be married. So other people would be kind of skittish about marrying a woman who had a man break off an engagement. So a woman could bring a breach of promise suit to literally sue for damages to both their ruined reputation and their ruined marriage chances. But the catch was you had to be kind of a respectable woman you know, to, to bring a breach of promise uh, suit. You couldn't just be um, someone who had an affair with somebody. You couldn't be, there was a famous case where a prostitute tried to sue someone for breach of promise. And the court said, we will not allow a breach of promise suit to be brought by a woman who should not be married at all. You know, you obviously are not a respectable woman and you cannot bring a breach of promise suit. So for her to bring this breach of promise suit was really outrageous because she did have to acknowledge in the filing that they had had an affair for nine years, that they had had two children, um, that she was a fallen woman, that she was as disreputable as you could be, according to Victorian society. But what shocks people, so it shocks people when she brings this suit, because it's it's well known Breckenridge is not a particularly wealthy man. She sues him for $50,000. He did not have $50,000 to give her. But it is brought by two of the best lawyers in Washington. And people are like, wow, if she has these lawyers behind this suit, this is a really serious suit. They really must have evidence that makes them believe they have such an ironclad promise of marriage from him that they can get a settlement on her behalf. You know, a lot of people who sue, their lawsuits never make it to court. They're thrown out. They're frivolous. They're flawed in some way. Many women like Madeline had probably tried something like this, but they never got to court. But Madeline's got high-powered attorneys. Patricia tried to get to the bottom of, of were they getting paid, who was paying them? Were they doing it pro bono? But these high-powered attorneys really cause people to take notice. We ask, uh, we ask Patty, our guest, you know, about her 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 dream team of lawyers and how it really changes the the perception, the public perception of this breach of contract lawsuit. 
happy. Now, Madeline Pollard says during the trial, I'll take my share of the blame. I just ask that he takes his. And one of her lawyers, Jerry Wilson, makes a very impassioned speech in his closing argument, saying, why should the back door and the alley gate be barred against this woman when Breckenridge can come into your front parlor? You know, how is it fair that she's considered completely disgraced for what she did? And for Breckenridge, the fact that he had an affair is like, ah, eh, that's too bad. But, you know, he can go to Congress. He can do whatever he wants to do. So it really was an early case about looking at different sexual standards between men and women. And also the just the issue of this kind of older man predating on what had been a very young, vulnerable girl. Breckenridge is doing everything he can to keep this from going to court. But she won't settle. He's not able to really offer her m- enough money that, to even make it worth her while. And she's suing for 50 grand or whatever, and he doesn't have that. doesn't have anything anywhere close to it. But Breckenridge decides to mount his own defense with his own high-powered defense team. And a friend of his helps bring in, it's a great part of her book, Bringing Down the Colonel. Again, we suggest you go by that, a link on every social media. And in just if you scroll down in the description, we've got an Amazon link right there. One of the great parts of the story is that there's stories about other women involved, whether it's Breckenridge's daughter, Nispa, who goes on to, to an amazing life, or the incredible story of young Jenny Tucker, who's hired by the Breckenridge folks to go into this this what's called the House of Mercy, and to spy on Madeline Pollard, to act like she was a fallen woman, to enter this these homes, these places where women could, you know, whether they could give birth or whether they could, you know, live in obscurity as a fallen woman, a non-chaste woman, you know, the sexual double standard of the Victorian age that we talked about. But Breckenridge sends Jenny Tucker in to spy on Madeline Pollard. Well, it, it's a, it's kind of the craziest part of the story. I mean, if you if you've been made this up, you kind of wouldn't believe it. So Breckenridge is just Madeline takes refuge in a house of in the House of Mercy, which is a home for fallen women. The kind of the press is hounding her, and she really has no money to live. And this so she in, goes, in DC. This is in DC. Yeah. So she goes and hides out in DC in the House of Mercy, and. Breckenridge is just desperate. He's offered her a small settlement. He doesn't have a lot of money, but he can get money from his backers. So he's offered to give her some money if she'll drop the suit. She doesn't want money. Her lawyers really don't want to talk about a settlement. They're really not interested in a settlement. So he's desperate to figure out what she's up to. What does she want? Is it his political enemies? He had some political enemies at home who disagreed with him about the tariff. Was it his political enemies who were behind her. So he thinks if he can figure out what she wants and what she's up to, he can somehow, you know, kind of keep this whole thing from coming to trial. So he hires, he doesn't hire, his friend Charles Stoll hires Jenny Tucker, who had worked for Charles Stoll as a secretary in New York before what was a very debilitating financial depression in 1893 that kind of threw Jenny and a lot of people out of work. He reaches out to Jenny, who's now up in Maine at her family's home, and says, will you come to D.C.? I have a, you know, I have a very special project for you. And the special project was to pretend she was disgraced woman and try to get into the house of mercy and befriend Madeline Pollard so they could figure out what exactly she wanted from Breckenridge. What exactly was she hoping to gain from this trial? So Jenny gets this inside look at these these horrible places where these young women who have had these illegitimate babies sleep on corn husk mattresses and eat gruel for breakfast and just are treated like in the worst possible way for the crime of having had an illegitimate baby. 
Thanks for listening to Ohio V the World. Every episode this season, we will bring you an Ohio History Connection Minute that is highlight the work being done to spark discovery of Ohio's stories. The Ohio History Connection, formerly the Ohio Historical Society, preserves and shares the history of the state of Ohio. In each episode, we'll talk with an employee of the OHC or someone from the over 50 sites we manage across the Buckeye State. I urge you to visit our museum, the Ohio History Center in Columbus, and become a member. Go to ohiohistory.org slash join. So thanks for listening. Hope to see you at the History Center this year and go to ohiohistory.org slash join for membership info. On this episode's Ohio History Connection Minute, we're going to reconnect with Megan Wood, the Director of Museum and Library Services, and finish our conversation. Uh, Just this week, we were at a board meeting for the Ohio History Connection, and Megan gave us a tour of the third floor of the archives uh, up in the fourth and fifth floor where they keep a lot of the collections. Um, and we talked with her about one of the main things that I saw people at the archives in the library doing this week, and that's a lot of genealogy research. It's been such a boom, in, in whether it's DNA testing, um, you know, and, and learning where your family comes from and your family tree. And that's something at the Ohio History Connection that their librarians can really help you with. They have those sources. Um, we talked to Megan just about the genealogy a research that goes on every single day at the Ohio History Center, uh, which is located 800 East 17th Avenue, right off of 71. There's just a really um, strong interest in knowing ourselves better. I even think the DNA, the boom of like the DNA research is, um, is invigorating people to understand more about themselves. And it's kind of, sometimes it sets the first gateway to history is like, I see myself, so maybe I can see others. Yeah. Um, so we do a lot with helping people um, research their families uh, and not just like what, how to find the documents, but what kind of documents you need to look for. Sometimes it really takes creative thinking that um, if you're dealing with a woman whose name has changed or you're, sure. you know, you're dealing with communities that are underdocumented historically, it takes a lot of um, critical thinking to help uh, to help find those pathways, and that's really what our staff is skilled at, is thinking about, here's all the ways we might find this person. And people aren't really charged for that kind of attention, right? Right. If you come in, um, we're open uh, Wednesday through Saturday, 10 to 5. We have staff there um, ready, willing to help. We answer thousands of inquiries via email every year. We answer phone inquiries. We answer inquiries via letter. So on top of the people that come and see us here, we're also working across the world right. um, electronically. So, you know, we have all these amazing archives and pieces. And like you said, you're not just keeping old newspapers, mm-hmm. um, even though you guys have a lot of old newspapers. We do have a lot of old newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again to Megan Wood for joining us, the director of Museum and Library Services. Uh, she does such great work, and we really appreciate having her on and on back-to-back episodes. Pollard v. Breckenridge becomes a story uh, uh, run by every single paper. It's on the front page. The scandalous details um, that, that people are, are learning about their relationship and about this entire underworld that women are kept in that many, many people did not know about. But the press plays a huge role. And instead of quashing Madeline Pollard, she gets out in front of it and tells her story. Um, and it changes everything. It changes the story that Breckenridge can no longer control his 
power and influence over the local media, his power and influence as a man in 1890s America is usurped by this unknown woman. And all she's doing is telling the truth. The, you know, the press plays a really, just a, a critical role. And what's fascinating about Madeleine Pollard was how self-aware, how aware she was of how important the narrative was. She was so smart in understanding that the narrative about a fallen woman really wasn't going to allow her to claim victory in this case. So right from the beginning, she really takes a hold of the narrative. She gives her biography, her whole life story to the New York world, which was a very popular tabloid and which would kind of print something sensational like that. I mean, she talks about her upbringing, you know, with her father and her kind of respectable life as a young woman, but then really gets into the nuts and bolts of the affair with Breckenridge and the, the babies that were born and how she was hidden from the world. And it was obviously a sensation in its day, but she was really, she said, um, I fear if I must stay silent in the weary interval that passes before this comes to trial, I will not have a chance. And she was right because it was the Breckenridges of the world who set the narrative. They were the ones who the papers interviewed. All the reporters were men. You know, these were the days when women were only supposed to, their name was only supposed to appear in the paper on their birth, marriage, and death. So Madeline really grabs the narrative and really uses the media she gives really strong performances when she testifies. And the media, the men who are just packed into this courtroom to hear her testify, the reporters from all over the country, are just entranced with her performance. They cannot believe this young woman is up there going toe-to-toe with these lawyers and talking about being pregnant and not really being ashamed. I mean, she acknowledges that she's violated the rules of Victorian morality, but she refuses to be shamed in the true sense of the word and not tell her her story. And the trial begins in Washington, D.C., 1894. It would last for quite a while. But I was reading the book, and there's this amazing moment where the judge just throws all the women in the, court, in the courtroom out of the room. Basically, everybody but Madeline. Not for any particular you know, testimony, but just this idea that no woman should hear, no respectable woman should hear the details of this case that they're too salacious, that they would morally corrupt a woman to hear it, and they just won't allow it. We asked Patty about, about the removal of all the women from the courtroom and, and how that actually was pretty commonplace. Outrageous when you think about it now, but then people didn't really think twice about it. So a couple days into the trial, and it, this trial is, you know, this is there's no television in these days. There's no radio. You know, either you read about in the newspaper or you went to the trial. So in Washington, it's a big spectator sport to try to get into this trial. And if you remember the bar, you could get in. If you were a congressman, you could get in. But everybody else is trying to, you know, wiggle their way into the room past the the bailiffs. Um, and one morning, about 20 women come in. They wait in line with everybody else. They get there early and they come in together and they sit right in front. One of them has a pair of opera glasses so she can see better. And they sit right down because obviously they want to hear what's going on too, right? This is a big case and this is a big deal and it involves women. So they sit there expect, you know, full of expectation with the other men who have been admitted as spectators. And the judge, Andrew Bradley, gavels the court to order and says to the bailiff, Mr. Bailiff, will you please remove these ladies from the courtroom? (laughs) 
And the bailiff gets up and says, ladies, would you please leave and kind of escorts them out. And everybody in the press was like, well, of course he did. Like that was not considered unusual. It was considered too disreputable for these women to hear this testimony, even though the testimony was ex exactly about issues that affected women. Right. Women aren't seated on juries in 1893, course, 1894. Right, because right, they can't vote, so they're not seated on juries. So this tr traditionally trials about issues like this took place. Madeline Pollard would be sitting. There was a few female witnesses who did testify on her behalf, so they were allowed in. But other than female witnesses, there was not another female in the courtroom. Case Pollard v. Breckenridge is really won or lost with the testimony of the plaintiff, Madeline Pollard. This woman who would take the stand, her emotional and more importantly, her compelling testimony, uh, which is reported by the press, is incredible. Brave, certainly. But she's got the power of the truth behind her, whether it's dates, events, things that Breckenridge's team really can't refute. We talk about Madeline Pollard's testimony, her powerful testimony, in the case of Pollard v. Breckenridge. It, it was a he said, she said case, and they could not believe that a woman, as one of the papers said, would testify to things no woman would care to discuss in public. Just by going public, she kind of scored a big point. But she was just magnetic. She really had, first of all, she had command of the facts and the dates because she was largely telling the truth. I mean, things did happen more or less like she said they happened. But she was just a compelling, magnetic person who was really able to make her own case. And the the men in the courtroom were shocked that a woman could be so well-spoken and so forceful and just make such a good case for herself, which obviously shows how little they thought of, of women in those days. But at the time, there's like 200 female lawyers in the whole country. So lawyers did not really think women could go in a courtroom and stand on their own. And she just becomes kind of the darling of the press. You know, this brave little woman is single-handedly taking on this powerful congressman, the the columnist from the Cincinnati Enquirer writes, the uh, columnist from the Cincinnati Enquirer just loved her and just really praised her performance. Um, and Breckenridge not only didn't have the facts at his disposal, but just made a terrible case for himself. You know, his case was like, she's a slut. I'm a congressman. What do you want? <laughs> Breckenridge, though, has to present his case. And he uses the old tried and true strategy that she's a woman of, of ill reputation, that he's being blackmailed, that that even if he did do this, that there's no there's no breach of promise. There's nothing he can be found liable for. This is just the way it was. That strategy that he used may have worked so many other times, but in this seminal moment, in this kind of struggle for sexual equality, for women's rights, Congressman Breckridge's argument doesn't work. Well, and in the 1890s, I mean, it wouldn't be unusual because the thinking was that fallen women led honorable men like Breckenridge astray. They were the seducers. They were the sirens out to corrupt, you know, respectable married men. That was the narrative. So 
you know, Breckenridge says she followed me around and I was weak and I would fall back in with her. You know, everything was in the passive voice. I would see her on the train and I couldn't help myself. And I take her to the assignation house and I would say no more, no more, but she would entrap me. Um, one of my favorite headlines is the, um, one of the newspapers says, actually it was the Cincinnati Enquirer. The Colonel repeats his oft told tale of how he was led astray by a schoolgirl. You know, it was just it's a crazy defense that she, had been the the predator, the interloper. And the fact that it doesn't hold up really shows this huge shift in morality about how people are perceiving, you know, male sexual predation and fallen women at the time. Another great story in this book, the attorneys in this case got into a fight outside the courtroom one day. It was really testy Uh, between people in the audience, between people in the, in the press, between people in the courtroom for sure. These attorneys, uh, basically Breckenridge's attorneys, thinks that they were their their honor was challenged, an issue over a, a deposition. But there's a fight between the attorneys, a real fight, broken up by the judge outside the courtroom. Uh, one of the attorneys on Breckenridge's side challenges another attorney to a duel. Talk about the 19th century dueling. I'm glad we don't have that anymore. Um, I mean, the the attorneys are all patted down for guns when they come back the next day, but it was crazy. It's all over the news, this trial, Pollard v. Breckenridge, and finally a verdict comes out, and they find in favor of Madeline Pollard for breach of promise, a promise to marry by Congressman Breckenridge. People are shocked. She's won. The verdict is in her favor. She's awarded fifteen thousand dollars of the fifty, which was a significant, you know, amount of money in that at that time. Um, she never collects a penny. She knows she's not going to collect a penny. But it was more of a moral victory that they just said people like Breckenridge couldn't get away with doing this, and then just turn around and say, "Oh, she was a slut. She was a." He called her a wanton, a, as a wanton woman. He said. This- if you allow her to win, every wanton will drag their filthy little cat in the court. Every wanton will try to entrap men like me. Um, so it really, it was a moral victory for Madeline more than a financial victory. But the fact that an all-male jury in 1894 awarded her, unanimously awarded her $15,000 was a, was a big deal at the time. You think about what's going on in this country that made 2017 you know, that, that was the year that the Me Too movement started. A movement that could have started in 1991, or hell, 1961. Um, comes to a head in 2017, and, and all the factors were right. The political factors, everything came together, this perfect storm where the truth was exposed. And bad people were taken out of positions of power and fame and wealth. Well, we asked our author, Patty Miller, What was it about 1894 that allowed Madeline Pollard to be victorious and allowed her to to really cast just a spotlight on all that was wrong with the treatment of women, sexual double standards, sexual equality, and really, like we call this episode, exposes the patriarchy? Well, there was two big things that were happening. One was the the uh, what was called at the time the Panic of 1893, which still st- extended into 1894, which was a depression. It was a, at time the biggest depression the country had ever seen, and would only be you know outmatched by the Great Depression. And so people were very 
shaken in the leadership of the country. Cleveland was a conservative. He had been very pro-business and everything was like, just trust the men in charge. We'll run things. Don't worry about it. Hmm. And then there's this crippling financial um, depression that as one historian said, everything that happens afterwards, you have to measure by as an effect of that depression. People really lost faith in the leadership and in kind of the old ways. And oh, just trust us. We know what we're doing. And we're really looking, I think, for newer voices and a more progressive take on issues. So that was one thing. People were really in doubt of this kind of white male leadership that had seemed so certain. But the other huge thing that's happening in the 1890s, in the early 1890s, is women are streaming into the workforce. The One of the things that was interesting to me about researching this time was how much financial dislocation continued to be felt throughout the country in the whole period between the end of the Civil War and the early 1890s. You have this constant boom and bust cycle in both the North and the South. And a lot of families just could no longer afford to keep young women at home who weren't married. So women in their 20s are now getting jobs as secretaries. Thanks to the Industrial Revolution, there's a booming need for clerical workers. So women are going into offices to work as typists and stenographers, which are two technologies that have just been invented and really kind of create the first big need for a a female workforce. And so families are seeing their sisters and their cousins and their um, aunts and whatever going into offices. And they are not comfortable with this idea that these men can just prey on these women and then just turn around and say, oh, well, she was a woman. She didn't stay at home. She came into my office. What was I supposed to do? So I think society, because of this movement of women into the workforce, was really interested in rethinking how they thought about gender roles and how they thought about what a respectable woman was. And a respectable woman literally was a woman who stayed home, who stayed in the domestic world. So they really needed to, it was a big kind of reorientation of how society thought about women and public spaces. And so Breckenridge kind of steps right in this. They are no longer willing to just hear like, well, she was a slut. What was I supposed to do as a, you know, as excuse because now their sister might be at working in an office or a department store. We discussed timing is everything. The timing for Congressman Breckenridge really couldn't have been worse. He's up for reelection in, in the fall. Uh, he's primaried in the fall following this verdict. And the women of Lexington, Kentucky, rally um, and try to sway the vote of their husbands and boyfriends and fathers and uncles to vote against Breckenridge. And he actually does lose those efforts uh, of women politically organizing in massive numbers against his reelection. But we also want to catch up with, after the verdict, what happened with Madeline Pollard. What happened to Jenny Tucker, the spy, the, the spy who was the mole who infiltrated Madeline's world to give Breckenridge's defense team so much information, input into her, her motives and her life and, and what she was doing. They never get paid. Madeline, I think, knew she wasn't going to get paid. Jenny thought she was such a good friend with Breckenridge, and he owed her $200 for her work, which was a lot of money in those days and would have made a huge difference, especially in the midst of a depression. And he never pays her. So she goes back to Maine and lives in her family's home and is kind of broke and really scrapes by on odds and ends for years until eventually she takes over the family home and turns it into a hotel and has kind of a some financial success with that, but never really gets over the fact that old Breck, as she starts calling him, never paid her. He totally, you know, 
used her time and labor for almost five months. I mean, it goes on because she does some secretarial work for him for his appeal, and she comes and helps out during the election battle in Lexington. So for five months of work, she was never paid. Well, uh, and Madeline, you know, ends up living in, in Europe and in England, right? Madeline ends up living the life. She goes to England probably to get away from the publicity. I mean, they were for a year. It was like, where's Waldo with Madeline? You know, Madeline Pollard was seen at Pike's Peak. Madeline Pollard was getting on a steamship for Europe. Everybody was fascinated with Madeline Pollard and what she would do next. So she eventually settled in Oxford, um, where she meets this Irish-born widow who was apparently fairly wealthy and basically lives with her as a traveling companion for the rest of her life. And they spend the early 1920s in Paris. They go to Egypt. They go to Turkey. She travels all over the world. So Madeline Pollard actually ends up doing all right for herself, to tell you the truth. You know, as we, as we close here today, we talked to Patty Miller uh, one last time about her book, Bringing Down the Colonel. You know, she just was on uh, at Politics and Prose, which is a very famous bookstore in D.C., you know, did a presentation there. And you're going to start seeing her more. She's coming to the Cincinnati area uh, in February or March. She's going to let us know, and, and we'll blast that out. Uh, and you can go see her speak about this incredible time. But we asked her about the story of Madeline Pollard. Is it something, what can we glean from it? In this modern, this modern era, this Me Too age, uh, what can we learn from her story uh, as a pioneer to expose the double standard uh, between men and women that has existed in this country since the moment of our founders? Well, I think, I think the story is incredibly resonant for two reasons. One is it's hard to believe that this still happens. And that's what the Me Too movement has told us. I mean, the names may change, the players may change, the specifics may change, but what we're seeing now is the story isn't history. It really is, um, as I said, a parallel story. And it's, so from that point of view, it's really upsetting that this is still going on. Um, it's ironic that Madeline Pollard in some ways came out better than some women do today. I mean, I think of the parallels with Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton and, you know, Monica Lewinsky has been very outspoken now that she really feels that she was used by Clinton and she was young and she was vulnerable. Um, and the power differential made it such that it could never truly be called a consensual affair. And yet, you know, 125 years ago, Madeline Pollard came out substantially better than Monica Lewinsky did. But it's also resonant because I think it's a really hopeful story. These women were really resilient women, and they were resilient women with much less resources and much less kind of public acceptability and, you know, clout than women have now, and yet managed to not only hold Breckenridge to account, but each woman I talk about in the story kind of lives an amazing, interesting life in her own way. We don't get into his daughter, Nispa, who is in another amazing character. Um, and so just that resilience and that sense that they could make a better world for the woman who would come after them. Um, it's just, I find that a really, uh, a really hopeful part of the story. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading, and I like reading, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, from the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue, Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading 
That'll do it today. Our book recommendation, obviously, is Bringing Down the Colonel, A Sex Scandal of the Gilded Age, and The Powerless Woman Who Took on Washington. It's by Patricia Miller, released uh, November 13, 2018, uh, less than a month from when we're recording this episode. We thank her so much for joining us uh, by Skype from her office in, in Washington. And again, go buy this book, guys. Links on uh, the episode description. We'll post it on Facebook, Instagram, our Twitter page, Ohio V the World. Um, again, Patty Miller, just a, so cool with her time. We talked for, gosh, must have been well over. But my favorite time in history is really from 1860, the Civil War, you know, to Roosevelt, Lincoln to Roosevelt in World War I. Um, and nobody personifies that period of time more than Ohioan John Hay. Lincoln's, you know, secretary, um, and then becomes secretary of state, you know, 40, 50 years later under Roosevelt. Uh, we did an episode called Ohio versus the Gilded Age uh, in the middle of last season. Go check that out uh, about John Hay. It's one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. But Madeline Pollard actually had a, you know, a wrote to John Hay. John, one of the most famous people of his time, was also a famous author. And we talked, you know, with Patty Miller, she wrote such a great book, but she did the research, man. Um, and you can tell when she finds these little snippets, like Madeline Pollard's letter to one of our favorites here in Ohio Be the World, one of our favorite history figures, John Hay. Relationship. Yeah, she was an aspiring writer. You know, she, uh, you talk about a letter that she wrote to John Hay in 1890, who's one of our favorite Ohioans and Americans. How do you find a correspondence like that, a random letter from... Madeline Pollard to, to John Hay. Well, you know, the, the short, I could say I'm a brilliant historian, but the short <laughs> answer is I fell down a Google hole. I was probably Googling something else, just trying to see, because one of the beauties of Google is sometimes it helps you find things that you would never, ever, ever find. Yeah. And I, I was not certainly Googling for that. Um, I was looking for something else, I'm sure, and just popped up a finding aid from um, Hayes Papers up at Brown University that, and one of the correspondents was a Madeline Pollard. And it was from about the year that, you know, this would have occurred. And I said, that couldn't have possibly been the real Madeline Pollard, but my Madeline Pollard. So I, you know, I contacted the library and asked them to send me a copy of the letter and held my breath. And it showed up and sure enough, she had written him asking for advice about becoming a writer. And could he come visit her at the convent where she was staying? One of the ways uh, she and Breckenridge hid their relationship when she came to Washington was to live in a convent, a convent school. Um, and she'd given up her baby that she had had to an orphan asylum. So there was no problem there. They had no idea about the affair she was having. And so she reached out to several famous writers, Charles Dudley Warner, who was a well-known um, um, Harper's columnist at the time was publicly mentioned in the newspapers as being someone who had been involved with her and who had mentioned he had become friendly with her because she had written to him and asking for rice for advice about writing. So here that I have in my hand, this letter in her own hand, writing to Hay, asking for advice and for him to come call her on her at the convent. I mean, I almost died. It's one of those moments in doing this kind of work where to see someone's own handwriting. I, I had never seen anything in 
her own hand and, yeah. and seen anything that hadn't been reported on in the paper. Some of the letters back and forth to her in uh, Breckenridge Republic record during the trial. So I was able to use that, but I didn't have the actual copies of the letter. So that was actually one of the most kind of thrilling moments of the book. And it was really just happenstance. Um, that's awesome. I think is the library at Brown. I feel like it's named after John Hay. It is. It's it, it is the John Hay Library. So they were, they have everything he's ever written. I guess, or any letter that was ever written to him was just filed away. So it was perfect. That's it, guys. We're done for today. Thanks again to Patty. Go read "Bringing Down the Colonel" uh, and have a great Christmas. Uh, just a couple weeks away. Scheduling note: um, We are going to take the holidays off ourselves instead of being back. You know that day before. New Year's, um, we'll actually have our next episode, episode seven, uh, the Sunday after, January 6th, right after New Year's. So enjoy your holidays. We'll be back in three weeks instead of two um, with the story of Ohio versus unemployment. And we're going to stay in the summer of 1894, this uh, pivotal year in American history, and talk about the story of Coxey's Army, the first march on Washington. Uh, Really looking forward to, to telling that story. Thanks again for listening, guys. It's been an awesome uh, first six episodes of season three. Go rate and review the show. Uh, does so much for us. Subscri- uh, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, all those places you get your pods. And I'm telling you, at your holiday parties, share the show. We're selling T-shirts here uh, all the way through the rest of the year. So whether it's for Christmas, uh, they're 15 bucks free shipping. You just reach out to us at OhioVTheWorld at gmail.com. Um, or just shoot us a message on, on Facebook, Instagram, whatever, uh, and we'll get you out those T-shirts. You can pay electronically, uh, and we've had a lot of people who've done that. So they're really cool tees. Uh, we want to get them to you. So we won't see you until 2019 when we're back with Episode 7. Thanks, guys, and have a great New Year. grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) I know, right.